0: The longer I live, the more I realize that there is more and more things that I can't do on my own. I remember an occasion in high school, and uh, I lived up in the mountains. Our house actually set above 10,000 feet, and uh, and, and one spring, I believe, we were experiencing a snowstorm, and as spring storms tend to go, the, the snow was a little heavy and it was a little wet. And uh, I drove this little white hatchback Subaru Justy. Anybody remember those? It was a 1988 white Subaru Justy, and I loved that little car. It had a little push-button four-wheel drive, and I thought I could go anywhere in it. It was amazing. And... Uh, And so I took this little car, and I started uh, trekking through the snow, and it was wonderful right up until I kind of slid off the gravel road that led to our home, and and I got stuck. And I did what you do, right? I stuck it in four-wheel drive, and I I tried to rock back and forth until I could try and free myself uh, from being in the ditch. I couldn't do it. So I did what anybody would do. I was just about uh, two or three city blocks, you might say, from home. And so I got out. Uh, I turned the car off, uh, knowing that this road was not traveled much. I walked home. Uh, I prominently came in the door. I said, I got stuck. Uh, My dad hops up from his chair, and he says, well, why don't I give you a hand? And I looked at my dad, no kidding, and I said, no, that's okay. I got it. And I grabbed the snow shovel and I walked the two or three blocks back down to where the car was and I began to try and dig myself out. And then I got back in the car and I rocked back and forth and I was still stuck. And so I got out and I, and you know how this story's gonna end, don't you? I kept shoveling and shoveling and rocking and rocking and shoveling and rocking and I was still stuck. You see, I had a need. And I didn't recognize it. I needed help. I couldn't do it on my own. And so I chose stuckness. Uh, There are some times where uh, actually in life we choose stuckness, don't we? I have a friend, uh, maybe you know him, his name is Randy Brooks. And uh, he uh, was a missionary in New Zealand for like 20 years. And in my conversations with Randy, he said, one of the things that gets people when they come to visit New Zealand is it looks just like America. And he said, the hard thing is, well, with everybody so affluent, it's hard to see that people actually have a need. And not only is it hard for visitors to see that there's a need, it's hard for people who live there to recognize that they have this deep need And so they just pick up a shovel and they just keep shoveling. Because somehow, somewhere uh, in society, we have begun to equate economic affluence with not needing anything or anyone. We're just going to take out our shovel. We're going to keep rocking back and forth, but we're still going to be stuck. Uh, Maybe it's the person uh, that you know Maybe it's even you. And for years, you have done the religion. You've come to church because someone somewhere said that you should. And when someone said, and they prompt you with another response, you you continued on that journey. And they said, you should read your Bible in a year. And so you did. And they said, you should be baptized. And so you were. But for you it wasn't really about a relationship it was just another well it was just another shovelful of snow in order to try and get yourself out of a hole it was never really about a relationship at all And in all of these occasions whether it's economic affluence or or, or whether it's religion that we're devoted to rather than Jesus whom we're excited about in a relationship with We're stuck. And we have to recognize there's a need. You know the problem, right? The problem is that in all of those scenarios, we have a need, we don't recognize it, and there's someone waiting to help us. And we say, nah, it's okay, I get it. We've been in this series now for a couple of weeks, Strength for the Journey. And we're looking at the book of Hebrews and we're trying to answer the question, oh, when life happens, when life gets tough, who is the source to whom I can go so that I can have strength for the journey? I want to know the answer to those kinds of questions and that's where we are this morning. You see, the problem, the tough part about this passage, uh, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, we've looked over the last couple of weeks in Hebrews chapter 1, and, and the crazy part about Hebrews chapter 2 is it begins just simply by saying, hey, uh, this majesty of Jesus that we've been talking about over the last two weeks, you can't dismiss Him. You can't drift away from Him. If you want strength for life's journey, uh, then you have to anchor yourself to him and not forget about who he is because he's there to help you. And then in verses 5 through 18, he, he just unfolds not just his majesty, but his manhood. The tough part about 5 through 18 is there's a story there about you and I. And the story about you and I is that God has intended this tremendous thing for us. uh, That the ideal for us when he created us was that uh, we would be the apple of his eye. Uh, That he would uh, put all things under our feet. That we would represent his image perfectly in all of creation. And yet that failed. And we messed up. And 5 through 18 is the story of God's plan after we failed. The underbelly of this text is us. Now that's the bad news. The underbelly of this text is us. Temptation gets us, doesn't it? Uh, look at look at verse 6. We, we were supposed to be uh, something great and glorious, and yet we failed to be that. Recognize verse 6. He says, There's a place where someone has testified, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Uh, I mean, he, we were the apple of his eye. We were supposed to be great and ideal, and everything was supposed to be good, and yet something happened along the way. Temptation got us. I don't know if you've been listening to the news at all this week, uh, but you recognize uh, that 10%, 10%, roughly 37 million people who are married, roughly 10% are going to sites about having an affair. 10%. What that suggests is that temptation continues to get us, doesn't it? Temptation continues to get guys like Jerry. I mean, he's a, he's a husband and he's a father, and yet there's that suffering that he does when he's in front of his computer, and, and, and he knows that he shouldn't probably go to his computer late at night, and yet he does, and he continues to come back over and over again there's joe and, and 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 joe knows that that he should probably be a little more ethical in his business practices and yet uh, there's that calling he wants to be a success he wants people to notice he wants people to be proud and so instead of of living his life toward kingdom service to be profitable in the kingdom he's trying to be profitable on earth instead and he gives in to temptation and maybe maybe there's Janet and, and and she's a wife and she's a mother and and yet there's that part of her that wants other women to notice her. And so she goes about and and she lives with retail therapy regularly. And she goes and she spins and she spins, uh, not even just so much for herself, but so that other people will recognize her. And then there's Aubrey. And Aubrey, well, she hasn't had a physical affair, but she's had numbers of emotional affairs in the books that she reads. And she dreams about the kind of man who is perfect and does everything like the guys in the books that she's reading. And and she's kind of become embittered to her own husband's. Temptation gets us, doesn't it? I mean, if any of that begins to at least try and describe you, then uh, the, the case that we are in right now, the place that we are in, well, we're in rebellion against God. We're enemies of Christ. Uh, This isn't a great place to be. It's not a fun place to be. But if any of that describes you, then you have a need. And it's a need you can't meet on your own. You can't just grab a shovel and push yourself out. You see, what this text begins to say, what this text is saying is that the moment that we acted on those thoughts, the moment that we acted in a temptation, the moment that we acted in a way uh, that we would describe as sin, that we have rebelled against God, that we're enemies of the cross. Now that's the bad news. Are you ready for some good news? In the presence of all of that, what this text is saying to us is that there is one Jesus who is pioneering he he is the technician he's the innovator of our own salvation and he is saying put the shovel away and let me help you he does it in a number of ways just look at the text he does it by becoming a man in verse 9 In verse 9 of the text, notice what it says. Now this is crazy, right? In the first chapter, uh, all that we've heard is he's greater than the angels. He's greater. Uh, He's got this majesty and he's he's absolute and genuine and he's full of glory and he's the creator of all of those things. Remember that from chapter 1? I mean, he has this unbelievable transcendent majesty where we're going, whoa, that's God we're talking about. And in chapter 2, the author kind of flips the script. Notice what he says in verse 9. He says, In putting everything under him, talking about Jesus, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at the present, we do not see everything subject to him. Notice verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. Oh, wait a minute. I thought he was greater than the angels. Well, he is. It's this great Christian paradox, right? Of Jesus being absolutely total majesty. He's absolutely God. And He's absolutely 100% man. We have this majesty, but we also have His manhood. Gang, if we're going to have strength for the journey, we have to embrace both of them. Jesus is absolute majesty and absolute man. Notice what else it says about his manhood. In verse 14, it says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. Look at verse 17. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. He had to become a man. We have this majesty, and we have his manhood, and both mean that we can have strength for the journey. He is the one who is innovator, and he is pioneering our salvation, and he accepted suffering. When he came from heaven to earth, he didn't just come so that he could walk around and say, hi, how are you? He came so that he might accept suffering, and he accepts suffering in two uh, very distinct ways in this text. Uh, The first I want to point to comes right at the end of this section. Uh, At the end of chapter 2, in verse 18, he says, Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. You remember what I said about us earlier, right? The underbelly of this text is that when we come to temptation, even if we suffer in agony in not wanting to do it, we do it anyway. The great part about the manhood of Jesus is that when he suffers the agony of being tempted, he's without it. And so, men, he can say with you, that wooing woman, I recognize what that means to want to look at her in a way that is unholy. But if you'll hang with me, let me be your pioneer. I'll help you get out. It means for you ladies... It means that when you're, you're tempted to become embittered about life's situation because it's different than you want, and you want to go out and try and prove yourself to others, that Jesus is saying, I know the agony of wanting that, and yet I'm without it. Let me help you. He suffers in agony. Several years ago, I picked this up. From the author Max Lucato, he, he writes this about Jesus and his humanity. He said, Children played in the street with him. Had the synagogue leader in Nazareth only known who was listening to his sermons? How'd you like Jesus listening to your sermons? He says, for 33 years, he would feel everything you and I have felt. He felt weak. He grew weary. He was afraid of failure. He was susceptible to wooing women. He got colds. He burped. He had body odor. His feelings got hurt. His feet got tired. His head ached. And we must let him be as human as he intended to be. Let him into the muck and mire of our world. For only if we let him in can he pull us out. He had to be a person. And when He came, He suffered in the kinds of temptations that you and I engage with every single day. But it says not only did He suffer in His engaging in temptation like you and I engage temptation, it says that He suffered death. Over and over and over again in this passage, it says that He suffered death that he had to go about and suffer death. In fact, in verse 10, it says that it was fitting, that it was right. In verse 10, it says, in bringing sons to glory, it was fitting, it was right, that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Do you know what suffering is? I tried to think of ways to describe the kind of suffering uh, that we encounter on a daily basis. And, and I thought of actually, honestly, this is just me to you, right? I thought of sometimes the drive up from Omaha to Whiting as my two-year-old screams at the top of his lungs and just won't be quiet. And I think, I signed up for this. And Jesus is trying to say, I know that kind of suffering. I thought of the long runs that sometimes I have done out on the long roads when it's hot outside and my body begins to be depleted and my legs begin to cramp and I am so debilitated that I actually can't take another step and I have to try and lie down and stretch out and I'm just screaming out in pain and I think Jesus knows that kind of suffering and he knows it in death. And he knows it in life. What I hear in this passage is that without the manhood of Jesus, who is willing to suffer in temptation and suffer in death, we have no life. Without the death of Jesus, we're screwed. Without the death of Jesus, we are dead people walking. It was only in the death of Jesus, only because he was willing to become a man, that we're able to say he was made perfect. He was made complete. Recognize something else that this text tells us. Look at verse 15. He says it was right. It was fitting. And then he says this extraordinary thing it is only in the death of Jesus. It is the death of Jesus itself that becomes the means by which we are forgiven. Notice what the text says in verse 15 and 16. He's going to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. Jesus becomes the very means for us to be able to be free. Uh, did you hear that? Uh, you might have missed it, uh, but if you're here this morning and you have ever uh, succumbed to temptation of any kind, then you have become, well, you have rebelled against God and your enemies of God Himself. And if that's you, if that's you, then you have. Become a slave. And the only one who can free you is Jesus. He's the only one that can free you. And the only way that you can be free is by accepting His majesty and His manhood and recognizing that He came and He is complete in His salvation by dying. This week, I happen to be in Starbucks and there was a book there and it caught my eye and it said, you know, something to the effect of, you know, Starbucks recommends this New York Times bestseller. And so I pick up the book and the name of the book is called Just Mercy. And this guy who's a lawyer happens to write this book and I'm reading the back cover, right? Right. And it's telling me how this guy had begun to go into the penal system uh, and to systems really around the world and he, and, he, and he wanted to be merciful and just and allow there to be grace. And, and so I, I picked up the book off Amazon. I began to read the first chapter and this is what I wrote down. The author writes, I believe it's necessary... To recognize that we all need mercy, we all need justice, and perhaps we all need some measure of unmerited grace. This is a New York Times bestseller, folks. Uh, The world is reading about justness and mercy and the idea that somewhere along the way we all need unmerited grace. You're a slave. You're stuck in the snow. You have your shovel out, but you can't get there on your own. If you want to recognize the completion of salvation, Jesus is the way. I can't get, I can't get around it. I can't get around it in this passage. There's only one way, and, and, and it's Jesus. He's the one who's offering us freedom from a slavery that we've known so long. A couple weeks ago in class, I had a dietician come in, and, and it was interesting. She, she put up this, this cycle up on the big board. Uh, she had it uh, projected up on the screen, and, and she said often what happens when people want to lose weight is, is what they will do is they will just simply stop eating. She said this is a bad plan. And she said, oh, what happens is people in their willpower say, I'm just going to stop eating. And then the cycle moves to stop eating. And then, and then they'll, they'll gorge themselves, right? Uh, they'll become so hungry, uh, they'll just uh, have this moment of, of terrible weakness. And they'll go to the peanut butter jar, right, with a spoon, Uh, They'll go to the ice cream container uh, and she said then what happens is they've overeaten and they feel really bad about it and so the guilt follows. And then when they feel guilty about it, they say, I'm never going to do this again. Uh, This isn't going to happen anymore. And it goes right back into I'm not going to eat. And then when they say I'm not going to eat, then it goes into overeating and then it goes back into guilt. Uh, Has anybody, not in the dietary way, but... Has anybody known that track in their own spiritual journey? I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to succumb to that temptation anymore. And yet you do, and you're back, and then you feel guilty about it. And then you succumb to the same temptation over and over and over again, and you're saying, I'm stuck. I'd be lying if I said I wasn't guilty Sin is that way. If you know that kind of guilt, if you know what it's like to live on that treadmill where it just keeps going, that violent cycle, and you desperately want to get off, there is a pioneer who wants to strengthen who you are. Wants to offer strength for your journey to say, you don't have to live there anymore. As I got to the end of this text, I, I just kept thinking over and over, how can I communicate to you in the, in the most intimate ways that, that you don't have to be guilty anymore? that you don't have to feel that kind of shame anymore. You recognize in this text that Jesus says, I'm going to pioneer your freedom, and I'm going to make you part of my family. Notice what he says. I love this. Look over in verse 12. He says, So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. That's you and I. Brothers and sisters, okay, that's all inclusive. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praise. In other words, he's saying, "I, when I get to heaven and you're with me, I'm going to say who you are with me. You have refrigerator rights in my house. You can come in and you can mull around because I recognize who you are. Gang, we need to know this pioneer. We need to know the innovator of our salvation, the one who can completely liberate us from guilt and says, do away with the shovel. There's some things in this world you can't do on your own. And I'm willing to make you family. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe, maybe you've known Jesus for a long time and yet uh, you seem to have crept back into this pattern of sin and guilt and you feel shame. And you need to just recognize this morning that Jesus, that he has freed you from sin, past, present and future. And you need to get off the guilt train and recognize the liberation that is yours. And maybe maybe you don't even know who this Jesus is, but someone drug you here this morning. Uh, Maybe you're a relative uh, thinking about uh, getting out of here as soon as you can. But something in you this morning has begun to churn. And you become maybe a little more aware. Maybe there's a conscious awareness that there's a need in your life. Can I suggest that you need the majesty and the manhood of Jesus So that you can know freedom from guilt. So that you can be free of the tyranny of all that that brings with it. If that's you, then that's awesome. We'd love to talk to you. Put away the shovels, gang. Because there's some things in life you just can't do on your own. Let's pray. Gracious God, you're good to us. I thank you for texts like this that challenge our hearts and our minds. Um, I pray that you will work in and through us in a way that maybe we can't completely understand. And help us to embrace who Jesus is. We love you. Amen.